amazing change can take place. If we, if we play a religious game, we'll get bored and we'll get, we'll get worn out and, and um, we won't be there. But, you know, that, those vi- visual images that we saw were so powerful in terms of just um, a fresh understanding of what the cross is about, what Jesus actually did on the cross. Um, and I, I just encourage you with communion. You know, some denominations um, hold communion back from us, the general population. And you're not allowed to do it. And you can't, you can't even serve communion unless you've been to a certain training institution. But we give it away. And we actually say, if you're sick, take it every day. Go, take communion in your home. Because it is the remembrance. It is, as Larissa said, it's bringing into the now what took place then. And, and, uh, and saying, God, I believe you for this. I believe for that healing into my life. When I had cancer, we, we often took communion. I would take communion. Sometimes in the old days, I would take it with a, a Coke. I don't take it with Coke anymore because I don't drink it anymore. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's all about what's in here. Kids, you can head off if you haven't already. Great to have you with us, and especially thanks, special thanks to those of you, the teachers, who, who are um, doing such work. Okay, over the last little while, we've been examining this thought of what it means to genuinely connect with the Father through Jesus Christ. And anything less than a genuine connection is just being religious. And it, it's no, it doesn't help us at all. Well, today, I want to go a little bit further in that thought and focus on what does the Jesus we're following look like? What is the image of Jesus that you have in your heart? Because some people make up their own image of Jesus and God, and they worship that. Not necessarily the true image of Jesus. And we are called to to follow the Jesus that your phone talks to you about. Let me read from the Bible in Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to read all but one verse of that, um, that chapter. So pull your, your phones out and, and your Bibles out and read along. I'm, I'm reading it from the New Living, and it says, One day the Pharisees and Sadducees, say Pharisees and Sadducees if you would. Okay, that's who it's about. Came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven and prove his authority. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow, and red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times? Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. And later, after they had crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciple discovered that they had forgotten to take any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And at this, the disciples, who completely missed it, began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. And Jesus knew what they were saying, and he said, You have so little faith. 
Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets left over you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves, which is in the chapter just before this. It's the very last thing he was, the, the Bible records. The 4,000 I fed with seven loads and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up then. Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? He's saying, I can produce bread anytime. I'm not talking about bread. But isn't that like us? Don't we, don't we miss often what God is saying and doing? We're on kind of different places, and he has to, he has to come back and tell us another time. Yeah. Beware. So, so again, I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn it from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Isn't that amazing? The devil can do anything around the world, but he will never beat the church. The church will not die. The church will not get snuffed out. Communism said, we're going to take it out. We're going to completely destroy it. And when the China um, and, and Russia were opened up, they just found there were so many more, so many more Christians, millions and millions of more Christians. All the, hell, all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, and that he would suffer many terrible things uh, at the hands of the elders the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such thing. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. You will ne- this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all the peoples according to their deeds. Now look, in those first verses that are there, 
there are two images of Jesus displayed. And in a way, they kind of are the two options that we as Christians have of the, of the sort of Jesus in our mind that we have a, a mental image of and we're seeking to serve and worship that, that um, Jesus. And it's a fascinating passage, really, because Jesus is demanded to produce a sign by the Pharisees, to produce a miracle. And he says, no way. He says it's an evil and adulterous generation that demands a sign. But sort of as an, as an extra, he says, but you will see the sign of Jonah. You'll see the me come back to life. I'll die and then I'll come back to life three days later. And what we see there is Jesus angry. We see Jesus strong in his words. We see Jesus confrontative. But then this passage talks about two miracles. And even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, seems to be saying we're not to do that. But then Jesus himself talks about two miracles that have just taken place, where Jesus, out of love and compassion and care for people, feeds thousands of people with abundant supply of bread and fish being left over. And then he goes on and he talks about some yeast and anyone who cooks is very familiar, especially making bread, is very familiar with what yeast will do. But the disciples, as I said, they completely miss what Jesus is trying to tell them. They think he's talking about bread. And in some ways, this is a bit of a confusing passage, isn't it? Two different images of Jesus, this angry Jesus who's confrontative and said, no miracle, no sign. And this loving Jesus who cares for thousands of people at a time didn't have to, could have sent them away to the local McDonald's. Most of them would have made it. Probably they all would. They'd only been there three days. That'd be easy, wouldn't it? Hello, you awake? Could you go three days and then get to the McDonald's somewhere? Of course you could. Of course you could. But he go, out of love and compassion, he says, no, don't send them away. Come on, let's feed these people. Come on, disciples, go and see what food's out there. And then he gives them bits and pieces of it. And the miracles, I think, took place in the disciples' hands of what was taking place. So it seems to be saying that it's evil and wrong to ask for a sign. And it seems to show Jesus as being angry. But it also shows this loving and caring Jesus. And that's kind of the two images that we can have of Jesus in our head. And it can even be underneath the, the, the actual cognitive things here down to the, the subconscious sort of level. What is the image of Jesus that you're carrying? What's the true image? Are you following an angry God? Or are you following a loving God? And in the midst of this passage... Jesus asks the questions, who do people say that I am? Which is actually the most important question for people and for all of humanity, but for us every day. Who is Jesus to us? And Peter tells him the right answer. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's come to save humanity, not to judge them and put harshness on them, but to save them. And, and he says, actually, Peter, God's revealed that to you. And it takes revelation to see the real Jesus. We can be following a made-up Jesus. We can be following a Jesus who's less than who he really is. Jesus is better than we think he is. 
But if we don't believe it, we won't necessarily see the fruit and the effects of this better Jesus in our lives. You see, how you view Jesus will frame everything about your life. It'll determine how you relate to him, how much you love him, whether you show up to worship him or just to go through the motions, and whether you're willing to serve him. And we've got to follow the right image of Jesus. The Bible says, set your gaze on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. But we've got to have the right image of Jesus inside of us that we're, that we're, we're looking to. And here's the truth. The only people that Jesus was angry with were the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders of their day. Because they got it all wrong. They were making it all hard, all difficult for people. They tied up the people with the law. And they were teaching law, law, law. And the law has never worked as a means of being able to come to God. And now Jesus had come to finish that covenant of the law completely. Where people had to do good to be loved and to be rewarded. And if they did bad, they would be punished. That's law. And Jesus had come to finish that and to start a brand new covenant with all of humanity called grace where people are given unmerited favor, unearned favor, un, un, just un. (laughs) We don't deserve it, but God says, you've got it. All because of that. Finished, gone, new, come. And the religious leaders wouldn't have a bar of it because it took away everything that they believed to be true and all their power and all their authority. But the sinners and the people who were just normal people and struggling with life but knowing they were doing wrong loved to be in his company because they knew that although he was holy and he was different to everyone else, there was no iota of judgment emanating from his life unto them. He was there to care for and help them. And that's the God that we get to serve. And Jesus himself was saying, there is a false teaching And it will be in the world forever and a day. And it's still in the world today. And it's an insidious thing. And it's a belief system about the Christian life that can take you from a genuine following of Jesus into something else and into religion. And it's subtle. It's not obvious. It's like the yeast and bread. And over time, we can get separated from connecting with the real, genuine Jesus, and we can go back to just following rules and think that we're okay, provided we haven't messed any of the rules that we're aware of up. And we can just go back into working as if we make ourselves right with God, which is just religion. So is the Jesus that you're serving today the radical grace giver who changed everything for you? Do you worship him as the one who has brought you freedom? Or have you been tied up in knots again by the law? Is your image of Jesus the rule enforcer, like a policeman? Whoops, there's the traffic, uh, the police car. Just drop back that speed because I'll get pinged. Oh, I got through again. 
Is that what it's like when Jesus comes close? Or are you here this morning in the praise and the worship just saying, man, what an amazing God you are. And wanting, just connecting, you're following the real deal. Because the moment we allow it, this yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees will take us off that course of the genuine into rule keeping. And I want to tell you about some of the fruit of rule keeping because it seems like it's the way. We teach our kids all the time conditional love. So long as you're nice, mummy will love you. When you're not nice, we're, but if you are nice, great. We've been raised on conditional love. But God now for Christians is teaching us that he's turned the whole thing upside down and he's teaching us that we're always loved. No matter what, we're loved. And, from, and, and we, we, we struggle, we drop back, you can't love me now, God. And he goes, still love you. Finished, still love you. Finished, still love you. And we find it hard, but all of our life is learning to live in the understanding that we're totally loved. Totally forgiven. No conditions, not one. And it blows us away. But the more the genuineness of that gets in, the more the image of the true Jesus is there. And if we will, if we will follow the true Jesus, we're on the right course for our life. If we, if we get off track to the law-enforcing police Jesus, the sad thing is we will become like that ourselves. See, we're supposed to live light. We're supposed to go through... See, different cultures have different expressions. Judy's just got a, a lovely African expression of worship. She's living light. She just loves Jesus. So, so just worshipping him in that way is cool. And others of us who are, who are English in our heritage, our expression of worship is... <laughs> or, <laughs> but that's cool too, because that's being genuine to who we are. We're to live light where, where we can just genuinely say, God, thank you for loving me. It's so good to be alive today. But oh, it's pretty sad when you see someone who's tied up with legalism and law and rules. And, and uh, see, when, when, when someone's like that and someone breaks the rules... I'll get on to that. Do you serve a God who's taking from your life? I mean, come on, let's get serious. Is God taking from your life? Is Jesus trying to shut you down and stop you and, and hold you back? Or do you serve a God who throws parties? Matthew found Jesus loved going to his parties. He said, you invite all your mates even the really, really sinful ones who use the F word and have done all sorts of bad stuff, and I'll come. What is the image that you and I are carrying inside of here? You see, Jesus' people are called people who teach law-keeping. Now, I'm not against the law. I've done many messages on that, and we'll continue to teach on the law. And how that interplays with grace. Not against the law. But he, he called people who teach law-keeping as the means to be right with God, the enemy. Yeah. 
He had talked to me afterwards. I'm glad to answer your question. And the enemy killed him. And so he takes the disciples aside and he says, take special care or you, even you, could become a Pharisee. It's pretty, pretty significant words, eh? And sadly, Christian churches at times have more closely resembled Pharisees than grace-filled communities. Mahatma Gandhi, when he was studying Christianity, came up with these infamous words. And he said, Jesus, I like. The church, I just can't stand the church. You see, Jesus brought grace and not a stick. And he dispenses mercy, not judgment. And, and he brings freedom into our lives. And he offers healing to us in areas where, where we're damaged. And if you can see that Jesus and follow that Jesus, your life will be going in the right direction. But if you see an angry, demanding Jesus, your life will become those qualities. You know, in the weeks just after the, the earthquake, two supposed prophets flew in from Germany. And they came into a meeting where I was of pastors and they began to prophesy and say that you're the most wicked city on the earth and other things that were there. And we showed them the door and said, go back to Germany. You're not, you're not speaking for, out of a, a New Testament prophet situation. And why could we say that? Because our God is a radical grace giver. But the thing is, it takes revelation where we've been praying and God just gives that revelation down into our lives. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And, and for the two disciples who were working, walking on the Emmaus Road, um, at the end of their walk, suddenly they saw him because he was just opened up to them. In other words, they had a revelation experience where they saw the true and real Jesus. He was alive again, and, and he, he had not been defeated by, by death. Um, for Saul, it took place on the Damascus Road when he was knocked from his horse and a voice spoke to him out of heaven. And, and Saul was the ultimate law keeper. He was the one who was prepared to hunt people, Christians down and put them in prison and totally agree when murder was taken place and they were killed. Where does keeping of the law have the potential to take us? Saul thought he was doing exactly the right thing because he was someone who had broken these rules of how to get right with God and teaching other people about these rules and he felt he was justified to be able to see them in prison or even dead. It's a scary thing. It seems like it's such a good idea teaching people to obey rules as the means to be able to stay right with God. But it has never, ever worked, and it never will. And Jesus came to set up a brand new covenant called grace. You know, the amazing thing is that God actually likes us. Have you, have you let that sink down into your heart? It will just change how we live life. He, he, he's keen on you. He wants the best for you. He thinks you're cool. He, he believes in you even when you don't believe in you. He wants the best for you. 
He has more plans for you than the sand on Brighton Beach and he believes you can and will mature and he's willing to let you fail numerous times yet he doesn't discard you after any of those failures. He still believes in you and me and he just picks us up and he says, hey, get going again. That's our God. And as I said, it really takes revelation to know God in this way. For, for Peter, it took place in, in Caesarea Philippi. And, and apparently there's two Caesareas in Israel. One is on the coast, beautiful coastal city, still, still there today. Um, Caesarea Philippi quite quickly became a, a ruin. It was made into a nice city by um, Herod's son Philip, and so he named it after, after, Herod, after Caesar and himself, Caesarea Philippi. And it's, it's the... Further, it's about the furthest place, place that Jesus ever walked. And so it gives me the impression that it was in the, in the back of beyond. It was nowhere. And that leads me to the conclusion that God will give revelation in nowhere places. God will give revelation of who Jesus is in anywhere places. You know, Rodney Francis, who is a pastor in our, in our country and has preached here a few times, said the revelation of Jesus came to him when he was herding cows out on the farm, going through a gate, and suddenly he's having communication from God in his life, and he realized who Jesus was. God met him. A well-known songwriter who wrote in the 80s and 90s some amazing songs shocked me when he said that the revelation for one of his best songs came from sitting on the toilet. I thought, too much information, la, 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 la. Nowhere places. But God doesn't seem to be concerned with that. He loves us. He knows us. He created us. He's not actually offended. He just wants somewhere quiet where he can communicate. And he downloaded this song into this well-known songwriter sitting there. I remember a famous pastor's wife, a famous pastor, female pastor. You'd know her if I mentioned her name, telling us that much of her inspiration for revelation has come on the toilet. <laughs> See, when someone tells you that, if you're religious, it shows. It just deals to religion. God can bring revelation of Jesus at any point, at any time, when you're somewhere or when you're nowhere. It's when we're tuned into him. A pastor told me that God started communicating when, when, he, when he was unsaved and he was tripping out on drugs and he was being tortured by extremely evil beings in his, in his trip and, and God started revealing who he was and he, it started him on a journey that led him to Jesus very quickly. You know, perhaps, perhaps you could share in connect groups um, when you're next meeting how God has revealed himself to you and, and what he said to you when he did reveal himself to you. For me... I was 17 or 16 years of age, and I wasn't expecting God. I thought you just went to church, sang whatever was there, listened for a bit, and went home. I thought that was it. But at 16 years of age, in a church service, God suddenly started communicating to me, and I've never been the same since. So what, is, what does someone who's infected with this yeast of pharisaical um, Christianity look like? And Jesus used four words. I just want to just share them with you very quickly. 
Religion, hypocrisy, malice, and evil. I mean, religion we're all pretty, pretty familiar with, so I won't go there. But hypocrisy, in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Jesus began to speak first to his, first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is pretending we have it all together when we don't. It's not living out what we say we believe. And research that has been done that tells us that most of the teens who were raised in Christian families and then have left, their, uh, left the faith after being raised in a Christian family say they did so because they could see that it was all just a religious club. They say their mum and dad didn't live out what they showed on a Sunday, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So what I want to say to us is we need to remember, always remember, we are all sinful. Whether we're in Christ or out, we still continue to commit sins and wrong things. And it's best for Christians to claim the title hypocrite. Owning it frees us from its fruit. See, doing wrong doesn't make us a hypocrite. Only pretending we didn't do wrong makes us a hypocrite. So being honest and asking forgiveness brings freedom. And parents, if you commit sins, and especially things that your children are seeing where you're arguing with each other, etc., etc., then sort it out with each other and with the Lord, but then go to the kids and explain to them what you've done and tell them that God has forgiven you. And so you're able to go on from that point. And that makes it real for our children. But turbocharged hypocrisy is when we want to be forgiven by God, but if anyone does anything against us, we want them to have law. I want them judged. They've hurt me. They've done this against my life. That's turbocharged hypocrisy. But man, it's common in, in the way we think, isn't it? We can want it that way. And Jesus got a few parables in the Bible there of saying, don't do this. It's, ter- it's a terrible um, break because Christianity is to get forgiven and to give forgiveness. And then it goes on and talks about malice and wickedness. And this is the fruit of law-keeping. Law-keeping as a means of being made right with God. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, Therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And law-keeping can lead people into doing all sorts of evil and wrong things to people who won't play by the rules and keep the game going. And Paul, as I said, is a great example of where someone can actually get to. It starts with things like character assassination through gossip and slander, and then it just gets worse. So we need to be careful to stay free of this. And true Christians are followers and servants of Jesus, and that's in those verses 21 to 28. And it's an interesting point that when you come to Christ... There are all sorts of blessings that come into your life. True? Has anyone experienced this? The rest of you? Give me a wave if you know that God blesses. He's good, isn't he? That's right. Now, along with that, he also says, I'm going to be the leader of your life. And he says, I've got a plan and I've got things 
thought out that I want you to accomplish and to be able to do. And so he will take us down at times paths that don't make sense to us. Peter looked at the path Jesus was saying he was going to walk, and only Jesus needs to walk that path. We don't have to walk that path. That's, that's getting back into religion again. Only Jesus had to go to the cross and die, right? To pay the, the, the sin of the world. But Jesus, Jesus takes the moment to just say, there will be times when I, will, as your leader, will want to take you down a certain path that you don't know, and I just call you to trust me at that time. And I want you to pick up your cross, whatever that difficult things that the Lord might be saying to you actually is, and just walk into the unknown. Step off the path that's very safe and comfortable. You see, God has, God has given every single one of us gifts to be able to be used in the body and network together because God wants to build in St. Albans Baptist Church an amazing family, an amazing connection, an amazing um, plethora of things taking place here, and he's put all the gifts within. But religion makes everything about me, and we sit on our hands. And God says, there'll be times when I'll call you to get involved and get active and get serving. Will you get off your hands? Will you get out of the comfort zone? Will you actually start to lead in some of the things that need to be done? Will you put your gifts together with other people's gifts and make it happen? And he says, if you think that sitting on your hands is the way to live the Christian life, you'll lose. You'll lose. The energy and the excitement will slowly drain out of it all. And there are so many people who started well in their 20s and get to their 40s and 50s and they're done. It didn't work for me. I wonder how many of them. It's because they did this. Me, 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 me. Jesus says, no, it's not about that. I'll whisper into your heart. I'll whisper into you things that I want you to get involved in and to do. No, no, me, me, me. He says, if you will listen to me and get up off your chuff and get involved in the things that I talk to you about, you will find life and life abundant. See, it's an upside-down situation. We think comfort me having enough, my plan. And God goes, I've got a dream for you. I've got some things I want you to do. And it'll take hard work. Are you up for it? You might not relate with this, but I was thinking of it as I was preparing. Paul Edlin was an elder in the church here, and then he became the pastor. He had a real dream in his heart to become a pastor of a church, and we, we, uh, he became the pastor at Wainui Amata, and we commissioned him up there. And a few years later, Paul and I met in Picton. I drove up from Picton, from Christchurch, and Paul flew across, and we walked and talked and prayed for an afternoon about the dreams we had of what the things that were in our heart that God wanted us to do. And we talked about stuff, how we could influence our denomination to move from where the, where the denomination was to where we felt that it needed to be able to go. And then we shook hands and we prayed for each other and he flew away and I drove home. 
16, 17 years ago. And those situations that we talked about have all come true. I have more influence than many of my peers, and yet I'm no better than any of them. Most of them are more intelligent, more gifted, and yet God has picked up out of the dreams that Paul and I talked about those things, said, okay, you can do it. And so the fruit of that is I wake up in the middle of the night with all sorts of things going around in my head of things I have to do and people I have to email and write and organize and talk to. And I have to work hard because I picked up the opportunities that I asked God for back there. Do you see what I'm saying? And Jesus says, if we will do these things, if we will begin to follow the dreams and the passions that he whispers into our hearts about, we will begin to have life. We will begin to have purpose. Because purpose comes out of following a plan. Cool. So I just wonder, what is your image of Jesus like? Maybe it's been reshaped a bit today. Maybe you are moving away from Jesus as a law enforcer to Jesus, the radical grace giver who wants to love on you, honor you, give you favor in business and your family. Look, there are Christians who are going like this and there are Christians who are going like this. And they're both sometimes in the same family And many times they're in the same church. And Jesus says, this is a better path. Do you get it? We've got to focus on the true Jesus. We've got to get about, if the Bible says it, if that's what Jesus actually did, we're going to do those things too. (laughs) The adventure of the Christian life is in getting on this path. And following him wherever he, wherever he takes you, wherever he speaks to you about. Jan and Andrew Bovey. Jan's coming home today. I think she's flying into, into Christchurch today from, from Thailand. She's um, got to have an operation for a ruptured tendon. And uh, her mum um, and dad are, are growing older and, and need her back here. So it's great to have her back here. Jan has lived the most exciting life. It's because she's on this path. She said yes to the opportunities. She said yes to the leadership. She's run small groups. She's gone and done training. She's, she's gone out to do the things, whatever God said to her, and she's spent the most, her life in the most exciting places. And she's never had very much money, but any time she needs something, God has said, all right, I'll provide. And in coming home, she already had the, um, the money given to be able to buy the ticket to be able to come home. Amen. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And then the insurance company, when, when she um, uh, dealt, uh, negotiated with them, they said, we want you to have the operation in New Zealand, so we're going to pay for the flight for you to come back to New Zealand. Wow. Adventure. Yeah. Sure. That's the difference. Focus on the right Jesus. 
Say yes to the things that he whispers into your heart about and the opportunities that are before you. And your life will go forward and forward and forward. The only thing you'll lose is your comfort. It's not that great. It's a bit boring. But you will have the greatest life. God bless you. Would you like to stand to your feet and join with us? That was a great message, John. So good to be um, inspired again by what Larissa led us through.